If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We'll read together the first 13 verses. Mark chapter 6, starting verse 1. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled, at, he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed uh, with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I pray this morning as we approach your word and as we study the scriptures that we would not be as those who take offense at you and the teachings of the gospel, that this morning we would stand in awe of your word and who you are and the sacrifice that was made for our sin, and that, God, we would be those that are the called out ones, the ones that go, that are sent by Jesus and not the ones who withdraw and progress away from Jesus. Help us to see your word clearly. Help us to be changed this morning as a result of your word and your spirit coming together in our hearts and making a change in us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Many of you, if not all of you, have heard the story of Cinderella. And really since 7 B.C., so before Christ, 7 B.C., there have been different variations of Cinderella's story told. And most of us are familiar with the modern version that Disney made popular, and kids and adults alike have been uh, drawn to her story. And I wondered as I was preparing this, her story came to mind, and I wondered, you know, why is that? Why is it that Cinderella captivates audiences? Is it because she married a prince? Well, no, that happens in a lot of fairy tales, and that happens actually in real life too, so there's nothing that riveting about marrying a prince necessarily. But I think it's because she marries a prince, and that's exactly what you think as the the reader of the story or the watcher of the movie, that's exactly what you feel that she deserves when you see the circumstances that she's living in, especially at home, right? The people that she's closest to, her own relatives, her own family, despises her. They force her to live in terrible conditions in, a, in an attic, and, and she, she uh, waits on her mom and her stepsisters, her stepmom and stepsisters, like she's their slave. 
She cooks and cleans all the time and waits on them hand and foot, and they live in this life of luxury. And they don't even notice her or pay her any attention. And you think about Cinderella, I mean, she has so much to offer, right? This prince that comes along, she has so much to offer him. She can cook and she can clean and she can do laundry. She can mend garments. She has an amazing singing voice and she even pleasantly sings as she's doing all these daily chores. And to top it all off, she even has pet birds and mice that do the chores with her and sing with her. I mean, take that, Roomba, right? You don't have anything on my rats, That's why her story is amazing. This prince enters into the story and rescues her from this miserable existence at home among her family, those that she's closest to or those that should have been closest to her. And the words of Jesus come to mind as we even think about Cinderella's story. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. It's a saying that Jesus says on more than one occasion, uh, and it's sad. It's it's even disappointing when it's a fairy tale or a make-believe story like Cinderella or reality, even for today, if many of you have experienced that at home, rejection from those that you love and that are, should be closest to you. But friends, it's another thing altogether. It's another level of significance to realize that the same thing was said of Jesus in his day. No prophet is without dishonor except in his hometown. And in fact, it's not just sad in the case of Jesus. It's tragic and has eternal consequences that Jesus would be amazed at the unbelief of those in his own hometown, those in his own family even. And so to give you a little bit of background on the story, in case you're just joining us for the first time, uh, we've been studying through the book of Mark. And we've seen Jesus' teaching. We've seen that Mark is writing to show us Jesus is the Son of God. He truly is God in flesh who was sent to die on behalf of his people's sins. And as we've been studying the book of Mark, we see that, uh, that, that Jesus has been teaching and we see his authority in his teaching. But most recently, up until last Sunday, we've seen Jesus' actions. He's been healing. He's been raising the dead. He's been calming the storm by speaking to uh, nature in an incredible way. And in Luke's gospel, he identifies for us, again, we're in Mark's gospel, but in Luke's gospel, he identifies that Jesus has actually been to Nazareth once more before this. This is Jesus' second trip to Nazareth, as far as we know. On his previous trip, it didn't go really well either. You go to Luke chapter 4, you see that whole story. But in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, it says that initially they were all impressed with Jesus. They they, they in his hometown heard him teach, and it says this in verse 22, uh, all spoke well of him. So they hear him teach, and they're amazed by his teaching, and they're speaking well of him. And then yet, though though they were amazed initially, it says, uh, if you continue reading in in uh, chapter 4, verse 29 of, of Luke, that they attempt to murder him. So it goes from being amazed by him and them speaking well of him to verse 29. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Talk about rejection. His loving hometown of Nazareth trying to kill the homegrown boy before his ministry is really even off and running. Now that, that's rejection, friends. And to make matters worse, that was the first trip to Nazareth. Between that time and this time, Jesus' own family members have left Nazareth, came to Capernaum, made the the day-long trip to Capernaum so that they could kidnap him, take him back home to Nazareth because they thought that he was going to destroy the family name or hurt himself. So they think he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. The text actually says they believe he's out of his mind. So his own family members, his flesh and blood, his relatives want to kidnap him because they, they believe him to be crazy. You have to believe that, that even though Jesus is God, this kind of rejection had to have been devastating. Those closest to him, his own hometown, his own family members. 
now rejected him two times that we've seen in, in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel combined. And in spite of all that evil treatment, despite all of that uh, rejection, Jesus goes back to Nazareth, this time, though, with his 12 disciples, this time with those apostles that he's been training up. Again, another attempt to reach those that he grew up with, to reach those that, that he cares about, that he loves. And maybe, just maybe this time, this time, in light of all the miracles that he's recently done, of calming the storm, of, of healing or liberating the demoniac boy, of, of healing the woman with the issue of blood, of raising Jairus' daughter from, uh, from dead, from being dead, maybe in light of all of those miracles, they would have softened his family's heart, softened his friends to actually hear and receive his claims in Nazareth, to hear his teaching and believe. Yet this time, as we've read the text and as we'll see, like the others, it uh, proves to be a painful lesson for the disciples of rejection. Demonstrates to them what it's going to be like to be a Christian, a believer, follower of Christ, and be rejected by people as he sends them out. So we see these, these both in the same text before us this morning. An, an issue of rejection and then a, a sending out of the disciples. And so because the Bible is not just a history book, we don't read the Bible just to, to read about past events. We believe the Bible is relevant for us today. It shows us how to live. It's where we can know Christ. I want us to ask this morning as we study the, this text, these 13 verses, what our response to Christ has been. See the transition in our life. If we're a believer this morning from a place of unbelief to where Christ has brought us to himself to believe the, the news of the gospel I want to contend this morning that there are two responses that we see in the text. If you have your bulletin, you'll see there. I gave you the outline because there's a lot of subpoints, and I don't want you to get bogged down in that and distracted by that. So if it's a help to you, use it. Uh, but this morning, two responses. First, the progression of unbelievers away from Jesus. And then second, the procession of believers sent by Jesus. So verses 1 through 6, the progression of unbelievers away from Jesus. The first response we see here in the text that people have toward Jesus is that of unbelief. And that's really the common denominator among all of us. We're not born believers. Even if you're born into a Christian home, you're not born uh, converted, believing in Christ, regenerate, and, and trusting Christ. And so at some point in our lives, we've chosen disbelief. And the text before us lays out, I think, three responses that Nazareth or that the Nazarene citizens had towards Jesus. And not that all of these are necessarily in chronological order. You may not have fell into these exact uh, system or way of responding to Christ, but I think it's a pattern that characterize, characterizes most people and their attitudes towards Christ when they're first hearing the gospel. So the first impression we see in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2, the first impression is that they were astonished by Jesus. Your Bibles may say they marveled or were amazed by Jesus. Read with me again verses 1 and 2. And, we, and he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. There's no such thing as neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone believes something when it comes to Jesus. And most of the time our opinions of Jesus fall short of what the Bible would tell us about him, the biblical picture we have of Christ. I think so many of us, even if we're raised in church, we want the Piccadilly approach to Jesus. You know what a Piccadilly is, or is that only like in Louisiana? Like a cafeteria, Piccadilly? Yeah, we want that kind of Jesus, where we go down the line, and the mac and cheese looks good to us, so we'll take some of that, and the, the, the country baked ham looks good, so I'll take some of that. But those English peas and collard greens, you can keep that, because it doesn't look very good, and I don't want any of that. And I think we treat Jesus like that. 
The things that we desire, the things that are attractive to us, we want. We'll take some of that. But when Jesus confronts us where we are, confronts our sin, or says something that's, that's uh, difficult to follow, well, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want that part of Jesus. And Jesus comes now to his hometown in Nazareth. And he and his disciples are there. They're usually on the shores of, of the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum. Uh, that's where they have been doing ministry, but now they've traveled to, to Nazareth. And again, Nazareth, give you background here, it's a podunk little town in the middle of nowhere. I mean, 150 to 200 uh, people in, in, the, in the whole place. I mean, this is, this is a tiny little place, smaller than, than any of the communities that we probably live in. Never mentioned in the Old Testament, never mentioned in uh, rabbinic literature. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a nothing nowhere town. And so it, and there's no wonder that Nathaniel, one of the disciples of Christ in John chapter 1, verse 46, when he hears of where Jesus is from, he says, can any good come out of Nazareth? You hear the prejudice in his voice. Can anything good come out of that little town? This is the attitude people had towards Nazareth. And it's on, it's on the Sabbath, so it's their day of worship. And yet again, Jesus is at the synagogue and he's teaching. And we see here again the importance. We've seen this multiple times in the Gospel of Mark as we've studied through it. Jesus is preaching the word every time we turn around. It demonstrates to us the importance of the scriptures, of the Bible, for knowing Christ and for living the Christian life. We have to have the Bible. And we saw how important it is for Jesus. And then verse 2, it says, And many who heard him were astonished. They were astonished. They were amazed. And in the next few verses, as we continue to study, we'll see primarily what they were astonished at. Two things, his wisdom and his mighty acts. They knew, because they're from his hometown, this is not a trained rabbi. He's not went to school for this. They were amazed, though, at his teaching. And then, then further, they don't deny his mighty acts, these miracles he's been doing. They don't try to write them off and say, well, they didn't really happen. That tells you that they were witnessed by a ton of people. They couldn't just dismiss them as if they didn't happen. So it makes their rejection of him even more dumbfounding. His mighty acts. His teaching, he's not even a rabbi, but he's teaching like this. He's doing these mighty acts. And they still rejected uh, Jesus and his teaching. They failed to believe despite all of the evidence that was before him. So application for us in our day, I think, church family, is this. In our day, we must expect that the claims of the gospel, uh, people will at first be amazed by. It sounds really good. Many will see uh, the claims of, of Jesus, that he died in our place, and that sounds really good. They may even see the body of Christ living like it should be, meeting the needs of the community. Maybe uh, they were ministered to in a time of, of loss, or the church showed them hospitality, or a physical need was met. And they're amazed by that. The church would, the people that they don't even know would love them. They see that and they're amazed. Or maybe even they witness the incredible power of God through uh, some miracle in their life. Maybe a family member was spared in a car accident. And there's no way to explain it except for God himself intervened and did something there. And they're amazed by that. Or maybe someone was healed of a disease out of nowhere and the doctors can't explain it. And they're amazed by God. Yet, when they read the claims of the Bible, they refuse to believe. They refuse to trust and obey that the scriptures are our authority. That's to be expected. It was in Jesus' day. Second impression, as we continue through the text, second impression, they were offended by Jesus. So they moved from being astonished or amazed by him to being offended by him. Look at the rest of verse 2, 2b, and, um, and then verse 3. And they began saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They began to talk among themselves. 
I mean, to gossip at, you know, as, as people do. This one, Jesus, man, I don't, I don't get it. And, and their amazement with him in one moment goes uh, to a place of contempt. Their souls are, are bent away from Christ. They're offended by him. What started out as shallow amazement is now all outright offense. And I think there's three sources of this offense. If you look at the text, you see in their, in their questions they're asking, you see the source of their offense. The first was the rejection of the source itself. Where? The where question. Uh, people reject the source of the gospel. Verse 2b, where did this man get these things? They're, in, they're impressed by Jesus, but they're unwilling to admit that he's, his teaching, what he's doing, the miracles he's performing, is actually from God. Because if they admit that it's from God, then they would have to submit to it. So they, they question the source. That's the same way with the gospel today. When you share your faith with someone, when you share your faith with an unbeliever at work, be prepared for them to reject it as foolishness because they reject the source of it, right? They may say something like, well, that's, that's true for you. That's your personal belief. But it's just one of many ways to God. Something like that. Or, or, or maybe, maybe that's good for you, but I'll try a different route. I'm going a different path. You see, because if they accept that it comes from God, then they have to submit to it. The gospel is true, uh, God's revelation of salvation, then they're accountable to it. And so they refuse to, re to accept the source. The second thing I think we see in the text in their questioning is that they reject the content. The what question? People reject the content of the gospel. Look at verse 2b again. What is the wisdom given to him? What is this wisdom? What, again, the people are amazed, but their amazement didn't lead to faith. It didn't believe, uh, lead to belief. They're astonished at his miracles. They're still rejecting the content of his teaching. He's teaching to repent, believe the Son of God, believe that he is God's Messiah. And I think we should expect the same thing today. Again, the gospel, the message of the cross is offensive. The content that we preach as Christians is offensive. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly, is foolishness to those that are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, the message of the cross is essentially this. That God killed his son because we're a bunch of screw-ups and we messed up and we all have sinned. And so instead of condemning us to hell, he killed his son. Friends, that's an offensive message. People don't want to think that their sins, their problems, their screw-ups are what Jesus had to die for. That's offensive. And so the only thing we add to our salvation, friends, is the sin that needs saving from. And, and that's offensive. That's an offensive message. In Jesus' day, it was offensive. In ours, it's offensive as well. And so, friends, don't be uh, surprised that the message of the cross is rejected in today's culture where everything's politically correct. Everybody's walking on eggshells so as to not offend someone. That's an offensive message, but it's the glorious gospel. It's our only way of salvation. Look at the third thing that, that leads to their offense, the rejection, the rejection of the person. It's the who question. And it's really what it all boils down to. It's a rejection of the person of Jesus Christ. It's a rejection of the Son of God. Look at verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And is this not, is this not, is this, are his sisters not here with us? And they took offense at him. First thing they asked, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the carpenter? Jesus was not a trained rabbi or teacher. Remember, his dad, Joseph, is a carpenter. And so, as they would have in that day, Jesus followed in his dad's trade. He becomes a carpenter like his earthly dad. And it's not until his 30s that he, that he goes into full-time ministry, he leaves the trade of carpentry. And so they're put off. 
They're aggravated. They're frustrated that the carpenter, the common laborer, the village handyman is trying to teach them something about God. Who does this guy think he is? He's just the local handyman. He's not so great. He even has a Galilean accent like the rest of us. That's what they're saying to themselves. And then they say, isn't he Mary's son? Now, this is an interesting statement, and it's possibly downright insulting. Sons in that day were identified by their father. Even if that father had passed away and was dead by that point, which many scholars believe that Joseph probably already was. Even if your father's dead, you're still identified as your father's son. And here they're saying he's the son of Mary. So what's going on here is, 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 is a cheap shot at Jesus' birth. Of course, you remember his birth. We're celebrating it right now. There are rumors spreading that Jesus was born out of wedlock. He was an illegitimate child. And so what they're essentially saying here is they're calling Mary a, a harlot or a slut, and they're calling Jesus a bastard son. That's what they're saying. I think uh, the Hybert's commentary on this is helpful. He says this in his commentary. Custom required that so long as sons of an adulteress lived a pleasing life to God, nothing insulting shall be said of his birth. But if he becomes an apostate, apostate an, an unbeliever, then his illegitimate birth shall be spoken of publicly and unsparingly. So this gives you some hint at what they're doing. This extreme treatment of Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, you're acting like you're not even a believer in God, Yahweh. And so because of that, we're going to out your birth. The fact that your mom had you without being married. How this treatment must have hurt Christ. A personal attack. To attack his family in this way. The people that he grew up with, the people that he loved, the people that he desperately wanted to share the truth with. He's already returned twice now after, re after rejection. And so they begin these questions to cast doubt on his person, his character, his message, his credentials. You see these questions. Aren't, aren't his sisters even with us? We know this guy. It's as if they're saying, this is the Christ? You're telling me that this guy is the son of God? We've known him all our lives. And we may not be able to explain how he's doing all these miracles, but we know one thing. He's not the Messiah. He's just the local carpenter. You can almost see the, the cynicism in their voice. Their minds are made, out, made up about Jesus, and there's nothing that's going to change their minds. The evidence is even before them, and they're not changing their minds. Friends, this morning, don't be that type of unreceptive soil. We've talked about the soil even in Mark's gospel. As you hear the claims of the gospel, as you hear the claims of the word of God, believe. See the evidence before you and trust that he is God's son, our only way of salvation. Their familiarity with Christ stood as a barrier between them believing that he was truly God, their savior. They knew him too well. They knew him and they thought they knew him too well. And I think today we don't have the danger of, of having too much physical Familiarity with Christ. We didn't grow up with him. He didn't grow up here in Bun. But I think, friends, the, the problem today is that we have a danger of getting so familiar with the demands and the claims of the gospel that we lose the weight of the gospel. And what do you mean by that? Well, I think sacred words get tossed around so often and so loosely and flippantly that we lose the, the weight and the meaning. Words like incarnation. That we believe at Christmas time, we celebrate that God himself came and was born on this earth. Friends, that is not a small statement. Or, or words like grace, that we, we were in our sins and because uh, we were in our sins, Jesus came and died on the cross for us. And that's grace. We didn't deserve that. He didn't owe us that, but he did it because of grace. Friends, that's an incredible statement that I think we throw around so often. Grace and mercy. 
Don't lose the weight of those words because of your familiarity with them. Resurrection. That we believe a man literally rose from the dead, that he was graveyard dead and he rose again. Don't let your familiarity with the story take the amazement away. Don't let your familiarity with the word of God rob you of the dazzling and radical belief claims that are made in the Bible. We must never let our familiarity become just commonplace to us. And so this season of Advent, we we actually believe Jesus took on flesh and was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Let that joy rise up in your heart and let it change the way you celebrate Christmas this year. See, final evaluation. We've seen the first two impressions that the folks had towards Jesus. Final evaluation, Jesus was amazed by their unbelief. Look at verse 4 through 6. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus responds with a saying that he made famous. You may have heard this before. Well, it comes from Jesus. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Jesus acknowledges with a, with a broken heart the rejection that the people that he knew close, the, those that he was closest to and that knew him best, those that you would expect to stick with him through it all, his hometown, his relatives, even his own family had cast their vote against him. And he acknowledges that, that truth for his disciples. He left his hometown to teach in other villages. And to our knowledge, he never returns to Nazareth again. He never returns home again. This unbelief, the unbelief of the Nazarenes on this day brought about two reactions from Jesus. And you see them here. First, he could do no mighty works there, the text says. How is it, friends, that the omnipowerful, all-powerful God of the universe could be bound, held captive by the unbelief, of these Nazarene people. I think we need to realize and, and, and hear me clearly that it was not that he could not do miracles. It was that he would not in the face of blatant unbelief. Jesus was morally and spiritually compelled not to show his power in such an environment of rejection and unbelief. Matthew's gospel makes this more clear. Matthew 13 verse 58. Same story. Again, but Matthew's version of the story says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So Matthew and Mark are saying the same things. He could not do works there because he would not do works there. Uh, Tim Keller in his commentary on this says, Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was. They were signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people's people in ways that revealed how we are to find by him faith and have our lives transformed by him. He could not do a deed that would not end in redemption. I think that's what you see here. This unbelief in this area was so strong and so staunch that he decided in himself he would not demonstrate his power before these people. Not the main point of the text. I think bringing it over into application, we wonder sometimes, why don't we see these kind of things happening around us? I've never seen anybody healed of, of, of being a paralytic or raised from the dead. You just have to wonder. The unbelief in America, where we're at as a nation, and in the West in general, the Western world, in a modern society, so advanced in our technology and our education, you just have to wonder. I think Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. We see this demonstrated in Nazareth. He would not believe, and so he would not demonstrate his power to them. 
And I think unbelief is robbing the church today of its power. Friends, we can, we can do as many programs as we want to do. We can schedule uh, activities and Bible studies every night of the week such that we don't even have enough hours to do them and there's not enough inserts to put in the bullets and to advertise them. But friends, if we do not believe Christ and expect him and his power for transformation, then nothing eternal will come of it. We're wasting our time. Do we trust the power of God for transformation of our lives and for the lost around us? That's the question. In Nazareth, they didn't and he left. Verse 6, I said he or two things, two actions from Christ. He did not do any miracles or work any marvelous acts in front of them. And then verse 6, you see the second, he marveled because of their unbelief. Only two times in the Bible that we find that Jesus is amazed by something. That the, that the text specifically says Jesus was amazed or astonished or marveled. And this is one of them. The first time, what we see is that he, he marvels at faith and he marvels at unbelief as well. The first time we see is in, in Luke chapter 7, verse 9. You remember the story. Jesus sees the faith of a Roman centurion, right? The bad guys, according to the Jews. The bad guys, the, the Romans, and on top of that, a centurion. So he's working for Rome. And he has such faith that he believes that Jesus can heal from a distance if he'll just speak the word. And then you see in Luke chapter 7, verse 9, Jesus, when he heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus marveled at this Roman centurion's faith. How marvelous, right? How marvelous it must be to have God be in amazement at the extent of your faith, right? And then you get here to Mark 6, 6. In Jesus' own hometown, he's amazed, but it's not by the extent of their faith. It's by the lack of their faith. And I think how terrifying it must be to have God in amazement at your unbelief. That you're so stubborn and so hard-headed and you've seen the signs of God around you and you still uh, don't believe. And he's amazed by that. And you can just imagine the disciples sitting here in this crowd at the synagogue. They're watching this exchange between Jesus and his hometown crowd. You can imagine how devastating this must have been. How sorrowful they must have been to see Jesus go through this kind of rejection by those that he loved dearly. And see, this was just a training lesson for them. Jesus was demonstrating to them rejection because he's about to send them out. He's about to send them out with the same mission. And if, the, if Jesus was rejected, then they could trust that they, the apostles, would certainly be rejected because they're carrying the same message. And so with this lesson fresh on their minds, he sends them out to an unbelieving world, which leads to our second point, our last point, the procession of believers sent by Jesus, verses 7 through 13. So we've seen the progression of unbelievers away from Jesus. Now the procession of believers sent by Jesus. And you may ask, well, Matt, did you just use the word procession because it rhymes and sounds good for your point? Yeah, at first, that, that was kind of the thought. I don't think procession sounds really good, right? But then I looked it up because I'm not smart enough to know what these words mean uh, by myself. So I looked it up in a dictionary, right? Here's what procession means. A number of people... Moving forward in an orderly and right fashion, especially as part of a ceremony, festival, or celebration. And I can't think of a better way to describe the church than that, right? That, that, that believers are those, an orderly number of uh, individuals that are moving in the same direction with a mission and purpose because they're celebrating something. 
And that's, that's exactly who we are. That's precisely who we are. So he's called the disciples to be in the text. And 2,000 years later, that's what he's called us to be. And so real quickly, as we close, five aspects of this sending that takes place when Jesus commands the disciples to go. Five things that we can learn about this sending. Number one, or A in your outline. Believers are sent with the authority of Jesus and as a team. Verse 7. And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus sends them with his authority. These twelve men are his authorized, appointed representatives. These twelve men and us today are an extension of Jesus Christ to the world. For them in the Middle East, for us all over the world today. And in that day, a king's representatives were viewed as the man himself, right? So think about this. When that, that representative came to you from a king, whatever he said, the king's representative, was just as if the king himself was saying it to you. That's what kind of authority he had. And you think about the comparison that Jesus is making, giving us his authority, sending us in his authority. And what an honor. What an honor that we would be representatives of King Jesus. David Livingstone, a famous missionary that gave his life to proclaim the gospel, said this. If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? Do we have that kind of mentality about what we've been called to do as Christians? He commissions us to go and he gives us his authority to go. It's his representatives. says that he sends them out two by two. In the Greek here, uh, he says duo, duo. And so you could say that these disciples were the original dynamic duos. He does this for a couple of reasons. It's safer. It's wiser to be sent out in groups together. Deuteronomy and 2 Corinthians demonstrate that the law in that day required two witnesses to verify a matter. So there's that. But more importantly, and I think for us this morning, the takeaway, it provided uh, mutual encouragement. It provided accountability. They would hold one another accountable as they go. It, it provided prayer for the ministry that you've got somebody with you, serving with you, praying for you. And I'm glad to know this morning that he doesn't send us out as lone rangers. He doesn't call us to live the Christian life isolated from everyone else. That, that well, I just have my beliefs and I'll worship in my way and, and, and you guys can have the rest and whatever you want with organized religion, but I'm just going to do my thing. That's not what he's called us to. He's given us brothers and sisters in Christ for a reason. And he's given the mission of the church or the mission of the gospel to go to the ends of the earth to the church. And yes, we send missionaries through Lottie Moon, but we send and we go as a church to take this great news to the entire world. I'm grateful he's called me to do that with you guys here at Poplar Spring. He's given us that charge together. We have the authority of Christ and we go in partnership with one another. B, the second thing we see about their sending is that believers are sent with the sufficiency of Jesus. Look at verses 8 and 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Here the apostles are being instructed that their dependence for the mission, for the journey, must be in Christ. You don't need anything extra for this journey that Christ has called you on. You don't need anything extra to share Jesus with people. Only the minimum provisions was meant to maximize their faith. And today I think we are even more in danger of having too much baggage, right? If these guys, itinerant uh, fishermen and, and, and tax collectors that are following Jesus around without even a bed to lay in. I mean, the, the, the foxes have holes and the birds nest, but the Son of God has nowhere to even lay his head. If that's what these guys are characterized as and Jesus is telling them to declutter, I think we need to lean in and listen to that. 
Jesus is showing them that their dependence is upon him. Not our jobs, not on our ability to, to be conservative and to save well and to make good, wise decisions with our money and our ability to, to budget. Our sufficiency is in Christ. In Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3 verse 6, they, the, the early church was able to say, I have no silver, I have no gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And I'm afraid that today the church can't make either of those claims. They had no stuff but a lot of Jesus. And I feel like we have a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of stuff. I think we need to flip that. Where are our priorities? What's our dependence upon? See in the text that our dependency, our sufficiency is in Christ. Number C, or number three. Believers are sent to where they are welcomed and leave when they are rejected. Verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, when he said to them, when you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you or if they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So Jesus now gives them, and I think us today, instructions on where to stay and how to go and where to be. Uh, When you find a receptive home, stay there until your work's done. This is just practical wisdom for them. This is practical wisdom for us today. Don't impose yourself on multiple homes. Don't hop around from house to house hoping you can find better digs or a more comfortable bed, better situation for you. You're at one house and you're like, hey, well, thanks for that, uh, that spot on the floor you've been letting me sleep in. But uh, your neighbor down the road has got a queen-size Serta, and I'm going to go down there because that's a little more comfortable, right? He's telling them, don't, don't be an offense. This isn't a five-star vacation. You're not sent out to live in this lap of luxury. Don't offend your host over, over what they're providing for you just to get a better, a better situation for yourself. Stay where you're at. Share life with the people. Live among them. But if you don't have a warm reception, if they're not hearing the word, if they're rejecting you, then you leave this warning sign for them. This personal responsibility that they've rejected Christ, the Son of God, will have repercussions. It will have consequences. There's a coming judgment. And that's what they're saying by this shake the dust off of your feet. When you leave a town, shaking the dust off of your feet was to say, hey, there's coming a judgment. God's going to judge this place because you've rejected the news of the gospel. And when that judgment happens, I don't even want the dust of this place on my shoes. I don't want to be associated with you in any way, shape, or form. That's what they're saying in this. And so the point is, I think for us this morning, even 2,000 years later, is that there are times when we must, church family, as difficult and as agonizing and as painful as it may be, there are times that with a broken heart, we have to warn others of the danger of rejecting Jesus. Even if those people are members of our family, people we've been praying for for years and years and years, and they continue to reject Christ and the the news of the gospel, we say to them, friends, your your choices right now have uh, consequences. And there's coming a judgment one day, and you'll have to answer for what you're choosing to believe right now. And we may say it through tears. We may say it as, as we're grieving over the fact that they won't hear us. But friends, there comes a day when we have to have that kind of a conversation. D, believers are sent to preach the gospel and engage in kingdom work, verses 12 and 13. And so they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And then they, ca- they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. In these final two verses in this section, we see that the apostles are doing exactly what they've been commanded to do because it's exactly what they saw Jesus doing, right? They're preaching the same message. Repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's near. The one, the Messiah we've been waiting on is here. That's what they're, that's what they're, what they're preaching. And as they're doing that, it says that many were, uh, had demons cast out. Many were healed. This is the ministry of Jesus. This is what Jesus modeled for them. 
Can you imagine how that must have felt? As just average Joes, as just regular old guys, these are guys that were, that were fishermen, tax collectors, tradesmen. And now all of a sudden they're preaching and people are coming to know Jesus and people are being healed of demons and, and being healed of sicknesses. And sure, not everyone trusted their message. Not everyone believed what they were saying, but they saw God do mighty things. Can I tell you this morning, friends, that today in our day, there's nothing more joyful. There's nothing more exciting and worth giving your life for than knowing you are living exactly where God has called you to be. You're fulfilling the mission that he's called you personally fulfill. You're walking right in the center of his will and he has you right where he wants you. We celebrate the third Sunday of Advent, the season of joy. Friends, there is no more joy in all the world than knowing you're doing what you were created for. That's why we're still on earth, friends. If not, we would have gotten saved, believed in Jesus, and he would have zapped, taken us on to heaven right then. But he didn't. He left us here. And there's a purpose for that, that we would make him famous, that we would share Jesus all over the world with everybody we come into contact with. And there's nothing more fulfilling than doing that. And then E, last and this one might be a little bit tricky because it's not in our 13 verses. But if you skip down to verse 30, you see that believers are held accountable for what they do with the gospel. Look at verse 30. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And so they go and, and we'll get to the, we're not going to skip that. We're going to come back to it next week. But if you get to verse 30, you get to see the end of it, right? At least the end of this part of it. They have the authority of Christ to share the gospel. They've been sent with the sufficiency of Christ. He is all they need. They've been sent with the command to make Jesus known and to do kingdom work. And that's what they do. And they see it happening. And then verse 30 shows us that they're held accountable for what they did with it, right? They, Jesus didn't just send them out and leave it like, well, I hope that works. Uh, you guys go and take care of business. No, they came back to him and they reported all that they had done, all that they had taught. Friends, likewise, this morning, hear me, likewise, we'll stand before Christ and give an account for how we handled this precious gift that's been entrusted to us. And it's not like Jesus just slapped us on our shoulder. He says, all right, chaps, you've been trained. Go do it. I'm going to judge you one day. I'm going to come back. You're going to give an account. And you better have been busy while I was gone. No, John 14, 12 says, truly, truly, this is Jesus speaking, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do these works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. You read that, and you're like, what? What, Jesus? Greater works than even Jesus? What does that mean? How, how could we be doing greater works than Jesus himself did? I've never seen a church doing greater works than Jesus. I've never seen a Christian doing greater things than these. What, what does he mean there? As we close, maybe this illustration from Time Magazine of all places will help. Aboard a United States submarine in the enemy waters of the Pacific, a sailor was stricken with acute appendicitis. The nearest surgeon was thousands of miles away. And so a pharmacist assistant named Wheeler Lipes watched the seaman's temperature rise to 106 degrees. His only hope was an operation. And Lipes said, I've watched the doctors do it. I think I could do it. What do you say? And the sailor consented. And so in the wardroom, the patient was stretched out on a table beneath a floodlight. The pharmacist assistant and all the assisting officers dressed in reversed pajama tops. Masking their face with gauze, the crew stood by the diving planes to keep the ship steady. The cook boiled water for sterilization. A tea strainer served as an antiseptic comb. A broken-handled scalpel was the operating instrument. And alcohol drained from the tor torpedoes was the antiseptic. Bent tablespoons 
served to keep the muscles open. And after cutting through layers of muscle, the mate took 20 minutes to find the appendix. Two and a half hours later, the last stitch was sewed. And just as the last drop of ether gave out, 13 days later, the patient was back at work. Friends, it was a great thing. It was a greater thing than any surgeon could have done, not because it was better or done better, but because of Wheeler Lipes, because of the human instrument that actually did it. See, a humble pharmacist assistant who had never done surgery, never operated in these conditions, operated in less than ideal conditions to save a man's life. Friends, in the same way, the apostles that were sent on this day, the church today, Christians right now, get to do greater works not because they're greater than Jesus' works, but because we are frail human instruments. We are messed up humans that have our own sins and struggles, and we fall short. And yet, knowing that, he still chose to use us. He still desires to use us for his kingdom's sake. Friend, will you believe him today? Will this Christmas season be a time of joy because you're serving this one, the king, who has all eternity to celebrate and rejoice with us in our coming to know him and our following after him. Will you give your life to him today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning that we see in the text two drastically different responses to Jesus, one of rejection and unbelief and one of lifelong following. Father, I pray this morning that we would choose option B, that we would be those that, that give our lives to King Jesus to be used however you see fit. Help us this morning as we respond to ask ourselves to, to honestly and openly search our hearts and ask which camp we're in. Are we the rejectors? Are we the followers? Help us to be amazed by you and that amazement lead to faith, not unbelief and offense. So Father, we give you this time. Work in our hearts. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As we sing, let's respond. Trust Jesus this morning in his word. If you've never followed through with what it means to give your life to Jesus, I pray that you would come and find me either now or during the response time or after the service. Don't leave today without knowing whether you're a follower or a rejecter. Let's sing and respond.